Would it be really helpful if somebody kind of gave you the inside track on an entire industry? Revealed the secrets of an entire industry. That's what we're going to be covering today. A lot of people, you, you look at, you've kind of gotten to the point you're a do-it-yourselfer and you've gotten to the point that you've graduated and your life has gotten more complicated and you want to hire a financial advisor, but you're like, I have so many questions. I need to know what it looks like behind the curtain. Hang in there and listen to today's show. We're going to reveal all the big secrets of the financial planning industry. It's Brian Preston, the money guy, restoring order to your financial chaos, retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions. He's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Bo, this is one of those shows that um, I think we're kind of unique. Well, there there is no doubt that you and I are unique. (laughs) Understatement of this industry. I I walk this line that... um, you know, I've worked on the commission side of the financial industry. I've worked on the fee-only side of things. And, you know, I think it does give me a perspective that could be really useful to the public. And when I was putting together today's show, I couldn't help but think about a TV show that Fox had on. And I can't even remember what year this 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 TV show. By the way, the whole series is out there on YouTube. I'm always amazed at what you can go find for free on YouTube. But the entire series for Magic's Biggest Secrets finally revealed, it it kind of reminds me of what we're going to be covering today. So I know it's kind of a mixed bag of donuts, but it's such my stick that I have to do it. Here's kind of the intro, because this does feel like it's us, Bo. So let me me play a little bit of this. It's the music? show that magicians around the globe don't want you to see. The masked magician is back, up, out of hiding, daring to expose the world's most highly guarded secrets. You'll find out how they perform amazing appearances. See, did you did you hear that? He had to come out of hiding. So, does this mean after we do the show, Bo, we're going to have to go into hiding? I, I don't think so. I hope not. Surely, I hope not. You're big enough. <laughs> you, you, you know, probably be too scared. Me, I'm, I'm just in trouble, I guess, for, for revealing these secrets. But that's what today's show is going to be. Financial advisors' biggest secrets. I think this is one of those things we're going to kind of, if you hang in there and listen throughout today's show, we're going to kind of walk you through the things that you've always wanted to know that's going to let you kind of look behind the curtains and see how transparent or, or at least make the process as transparent as possible to protect your back pocket. So, um, you know, and I, I had an intro, and this is kind of inspired by, we wrote a column, obviously, for U.S. News this week. It will be out. We can post a link to the article with U.S. News. But it's tied into this topic perfectly. And I, and I remember when I was writing the blog, I mean, the column for this week, I thought my first sentence was kind of unique, and I'm just going to read it. It said, wouldn't it be nice if your financial advisor provided you with a simple and smart disclosure, one that wasn't 40 pages long, written by a team of attorneys, and in such a way that it induces sleep faster than melatonin? I've often thought, guys, I'm in the industry, and whenever I look at a prospectus, I'm like, why do they bury the internal expenses on page 23? I mean, it's it's never on the front page. It's always after you go through all the legal speak. And I, I think that's the thing that people get fed up with, with all the disclosures, all the mail. I mean, whenever we open up a brand new account for a client, I mean, it's like a whole force gets sent to their mailbox. <laughs> I mean, and we always have to apologize. Even if you go paperless, we 
We have to apologize and be like, look, it's the attorneys. They require every bit of this stuff. And good luck on trying to understand how everything works because it is written by a team of attorneys in a certain way. So we wanted to kind of walk through five key areas that if you were thinking about graduating from a do-it-yourselfer or maybe you're already working with a financial advisor, this is the type of stuff that you need to be asking about or thinking about, at least so you understand where you stand. So, and by the way, just getting the house cleaning out of the way, we are the Money Guy Show. If you can go check us out, moneyguy.com. Remember, by day, we are fee-only financial advisors. So if you'd love to take your relationship, you've been listening to the Money Guy Show for maybe a year or two, and you're like, wow, I like these guys, and you want to take it to the next level, reach out to us, because we do work with clients all across the country. So with that disclosure out there, Let's go ahead and kind of jump into the meat of this thing, Bo. The first thing I had written down was most people have no idea how their financial advisor is paid. Yep. I, I would agree with that full fold because a lot of times, uh, whether whether I'm talking to friends or I'm talking to potential clients of the firm, I always ask the question, hey, well, how much are you paying your current advisor? And it's amazing how they kind of, oh, I, 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 don't, I think it's free. I don't ever see the bill. I think it's free. <laughs> and it's it, truly, it's hard to, to figure it out because it's, it's buried on some disclosure somewhere and it's hard to track it down. We've even, when we have new prospects come in the door and we try to at least show them what they're paying, we even have trouble trying to track down. I mean, because there's all kind of different layers. It's kind of like peeling an onion mm-hmm. um, with certain compensation models. But And, that, and that's, that's probably a great lead-in. There are three primary compensation business models within the financial planning and financial advisory industry. The first one and most popular, well, I'll put two as the most popular, is the commission base. The commission base are, is your advisor, your registered rep, that they get paid directly by the product that they are selling you, whether it's a mutual fund, whether it's an insurance product, an annuity, they are getting paid. And that's also a common thing when you say, well, how much do I get paid? It's not uncommon for a person who works on the commission side of things to say, you're not paying me anything. You're like, well, what do you mean you're not paying me? The insurance company pays me. Well, no, it's kind of, there's a reason when you buy a house, and even if you don't pay like your origination fees because the, the seller of the home pays it, there's a reason the IRS still lets you deduct it off your taxes. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when you, because you paid it. You, you know, it's in the purchase price. It's the same thing when you buy a commission product. Yes, maybe the compensation is coming from the actual company that's selling the product, but still built into the purchase price. So, so there, that, that's, that doesn't really hold water, but that's commission. When you, you get sold, a percentage or a, a fee for the product that you're selling. The other is kind of a, a hybrid. It's a fee-based model. And there's a lot of confusion in the industry because when we tell people we're fee-only advisors, they oh, my guy works off fees too. There, there's a difference between fee-only and fee-based. Fee-based is a hybrid where they can charge commissions on insurance and other things, but they can also do what's called wrap accounts where they do charge you an assets under management fee on other type of accounts that they're managing. So they're kind of a hybrid of the two approaches. Um, and then the third one, and I always call these the unicorns of the industry, is the fee-only business model. Now, why do I call it the unicorns? And I, I wanted to put stats to that because when I mention this to people on how unusual it is to find fi- fee-only financial advisors out in the marketplace, all you have to do is look at the numbers. Mm-hmm. But when we pulled it, I think you were kind of surprised by this number. If you go out to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, you know, it's, it's cool that the government has websites 
where you can, especially if you have kids in college or you have kids in high school and they're trying to figure out what do I want to do for a living and you want to give them some guidance, go out to the Bureau of Labor Statistics because it has a lot of the different jobs that are out there in the United States. And then it tells you, you know, how many people are in this industry, what's their average salary, what's the range, meaning on the low end, all the way up to the high end of compensation. And then a little bit of an overview as well as trends that they're seeing within the, the, the job environment that's going on. And, um, they have, and it was very confusing to me because I was looking for, I went to the bureau and I was like, I know I've pulled this stat before. Why can't I find financial advisors anywhere? Well, it's because they title it personal financial advisors because, you know, of course the government goes as easy as possible. Instead of just putting financial advisors, they had to put the word personal because that's the first thing everybody thinks of. So it's personal financial advisors. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, there are 249,400 people who do this for a living. Wow. So you've got a quarter of a million people that will help you manage your money. Um, how many of those do you think are, are fee only? Uh, well, you said they're the unicorn, so I'm going to guess it's a pretty small percentage. Yeah, I mean, and this is the hard part. There's three main organizations. If you're a fee-only advisor, there's three organizations you're you're probably going to put your name out there with. And you might even have your name out there with all three of them. Mm-hmm. So that's why you have to – but I think just for sake of being as conservative as possible, let's just assume we can add all three of these organizations together, even though there's a good bit of overlap between their membership. NAPFA, which is the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, full disclosure, we are members of NAPFA. Mm-hmm. They are the organization of fee-only financial advisors, the national organization. If you go to their website and about us, it has a section and it says there's approximately 2,400 NAPFA members. If you then go to Garrett Planning Network, Garrett is an organization that really holds itself out as working with advisors or a database or a network of advisors that work only by the hourly compensation or partially. Right. You don't have to be only hourly. You can. Well, it's just primary can, line it can be one of your ways that you do business. If you go to their website and try to find their numbers, they're not as forthcoming. It says hundreds. So that means it's less than a thousand. Sure. But they say we have hundreds of advisors that would love to work with you. So let's just assume it's a thousand. And then you have XY Planning Network, which focuses on you know, millennials and Generation X, Generation Y, and those type of things. And I think they've got a few hundred members. Okay. Yep, that's uh, that's Michael Kitsis's organization. So they've, um, if you add that all together, we're at a little over 3,500. Yeah. Out of 250,000 advisors. So, Brian, just thinking through that, is there a reason you think that, I mean, I think we said the fee based is probably the most common type of advisory structure out there. Is there a reason that's the case, or is there like a, is there some some logic behind why less advisors are fee only and more advisors are fee based? Well, I think I think it's I think it's the easier way is is the way things have always been done. So you have tradition, which you know a lot of industries are set up in traditional models where how was it done in the past? So you have to realize that the people who are sitting up at the top of the pyramid, at the top of the food chain, they went through this process of being commission guys. So they, they're, they're not as quick to adapt. Sure. But the other thing is, is how much easier is it to go out there and hold yourself out as a consultant? And then if your people never see how much they pay you, I mean, cause I'm working on the fee only. It is hard when people see what they pay you because sometimes they, they put that, that, that's all they can see, especially for those that, that are considered themselves very frugal, very, you know, cost conscious. Even though there's a tremendous value in the fact of, of managing, getting a, creating a plan and everything, 
when people see it, it feels more real. Sure. So if you can hide it on page 33 and then it come through a different source, I think it flows easier. So if I'm someone who maybe I'm young, I'm just starting out, just getting in the early stages of my career, sort of beginning the process and I want to get some uh, I want to get a financial advisor. Can I just go out there and hire a fee-only financial advisor? It depends on what your needs are. I mean, that's why there's three different organizations that you can get referrals from. Obviously, some of the younger people, you know, the XY Planning Network is focusing on those millennials and younger investors. Um, you, you know, Garrett is for the people who just want to work only by the hour. And then NAPFA is kind of the catch-all of all types because that is the biggest organization. And, I, I, you know, we work under the Assets Under Management. I like it because instead of creating a transactional thing, it's more of a long-term relationship that you, that you are working with clients as they grow. I mean, some of my biggest clients came to us when they didn't have much at all. And it's kind of fulfilling to see them go from here to reaching success at this much higher point. And, and you can't help but feel like you, you, you have your fingerprints on that to, to some degree. So that's knowing the three business models really is helpful in knowing how your advisor is paid. The second thing I'd written down was, and this is going to shock people, I consider all business models within finan- the financial planning industry and financial advisory industry have some form of conflict of interest. So, you know, that surprised people because, wait a minute, Brian, you say you're a fee only. I thought, you know, when I listened to Clark Howard and others, they talk about how those guys at least sit on the same side of the table. Why are you telling me they have conflicts? Everybody has a conflict of interest. I mean, that's kind of the way business works to a degree is that you just have to understand how transactions work. So let's talk about these conflicts because I think that's an important thing. If we're talking about conflicts of interest with the the commission and fee-based guys, that one's really obvious. Uh, most people, you know that your conflict, and it was funny, I was, I was going on Twitter the other night, and Michael Kitsis, um, I, I saw he had a post where, um, somebody had taken a picture from a trade magazine where they were pushing annuities that all the annuity advertisement said was, we'll pay you eight and a half percent. And you know, <laughs> and the comment that Kitsis had posted was, um, I wonder if this eight and a half percent is going to help my clients reach their financial goals. But that is what was in the trade organization was how high the fee. And you see that all the time because they even had in, on, the, on the advertisement that typically this product, if sold, would, would net an average of 14000 But under this new program, it's going to generate $30,000 of commissions for the product. So you recognize, wow, these are... You know, this is, this is juicing up mm-hmm. whoever is selling this thing to you. So that's a conflict. Everybody knows you have a conflict with the, the commission and fee bases that there's an incentive to try to get you in products that charge a lot. Mm-hmm. Here's where the conflict is on fee only. Um, fee only, obviously, if you're working with a fee only advisor and you come to them with a chunk of money and if, if they're under the assets under management business model, you say, Hey, I want to have my house paid off in the next five years. If they're managing that money and you want to pay down the debt, there's a conflict there because their compensation would go down if you pay off that debt. Same thing happens if you have a by-the-hour advisor. I mean, maybe there's an easy thing um, that you could go do, like go buy a term insurance policy that will fulfill your estate planning needs or, or make sure that college planning is taken care of to some degree. And then 
they might recommend, well, let's come up with this complex trust. Let's come up with this estate structure that has lots of hours of preparation to kind of pad their compensation. Sure. That That's a conflict as well. So does that mean you should walk away from all forms of financial advisors? Because as I told you, they all have some form of conflict. I think the answer is no. I think what what you need to do is just be an educated consumer, ask the advisor, Hey, do you have some conflicts? See what they say. I mean, I think that will go a long way when you just point blank ask an advisor, do you have a conflict of interest? See what they say, because they're going to immediately get defensive, whereas I think if they're honest and think about it, that that they can take the question, say, yes, mm-hmm. I have a conflict. However, let me tell you the process I use to work through that conflict. Just for instance, us. Um, clients will ask us, well, wait a minute, if I pay down debt, isn't that going to hurt? And I say, well, that's true. However, we like you to be debt-free. Matter of fact, I give advice constantly that before you retire, before you leave the workforce, I want you to be completely debt-free because I think financial independence is not just how much money you can always build. There's also a psychological impact that you need to be debt-free in retirement so you don't worry about things. So that's a core philosophy that definitely shapes and I think it neutralizes some of that conflict of interest. Can I say another big conflict that I see? And I see this a lot, when again, when I talk to friends or when I talk to potential clients. Um, college saving. I think all 50 states now offer a 529 state-based plan. That's Where true. you can go out and buy it directly from the state. But there also are a number of estates, a number of states that offer advisor sold plans where you have to go through an advisor, they sell you a 529 plan and it has some commission based products in there. It seems crazy to me, at least on the cuff, when there are options out there, when you don't have to, it's not just the state you live in. If you live in Alaska, you can go buy one in Utah or Florida or Nevada or fill in the blank. It seems crazy to me that for 529 plan assets, it doesn't make sense that that should be something that you're having to pay an advisory fee on or get from an advisor if you can go out there, get a low-cost provider, get some good guidance and counsel on there. Maybe it does make sense to have an advisor manage that for you if that kind of falls into that realm. But I don't know that it makes sense to have an advisor sell you that when there are other really easy products available out well, there. Well, I, I get troubled, and maybe this is the old public accounting background where I did pra- tax preparation for a number of years. A lot of states have tax incentives. Um, for instance, Georgia. Georgia, for $2,000 per child, you get you deducted off your taxes. So that's like a guaranteed 6% rate of return. In Tennessee, you see that they have a matching type thing where they will actually give you an incentive to put into the account when you set it up, we see this all over the place that a lot of states will have low-cost providers, whether you're talking about Vanguard, TIA, Cref, known in the industry as super low-cost, and these tax incentives that really juice it up even more and make it, why wouldn't you do this as your 529? But yet when you go and do a Google search and say, what's the largest 529 in the country? Surprise, surprise, it's going to be in the state that is tied to one broker-dealer that's in about every shopping center in every small town in the United States. And I don't have to say any more because you'll quickly figure out who I'm talking about. But why do you think that 529 is the biggest in the country? Gets sold. Is it because it's the best 529 for those people who live in Georgia or those 529s for those people who live in Tennessee? No. It's because their advisor who works in the shopping center that's how they get paid. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's a conflict of interest. And, and that does bother me when people 
do that type of stuff because that's not putting the client in the in, in, in the best interest. And that's that's a perfect tie-in to the next thing that I always tell people. Know the difference between fiduciary standard and suitability rule. Well, okay, you threw out some vocabulary there. That's that's those are big words. And and here's the thing. There's a battle going on right now in, in Washington, D.C. There is, I mean, all you have to do is look up any financial piece right now, and they will talk about this whole battle over the fiduciary standard um, and kind of bring you guys up to speed because I've had a number of you ask me on Twitter, write me private emails and say, Brian, what is your take on this whole fiduciary standard request that the Department of Labor, the, the government's Department of Labor, has issued guidance through the Obama administration that they would like to see that retirement plans, specifically IRAs and then ERISA-type plans, that in order to be a financial advisor on those type of plans, you have to subject yourself to the fiduciary standard. Um, what is the difference between these two standards? The fiduciary standard is a legal standard that you have to put your client's interest ahead of your own. Now, when you say legal, that means what if an advisor does not do that? You can get sued. I mean, it's one of the hardest things to try to defend yourself from is the fiduciary standard. Whereas broker dealers and commissioned and, and fee based that are not registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission as registered investment advisors, if they're just basically running through a broker dealer, they have what's called the suitability standard. The suitability standard basically says it doesn't have to be, you don't have to put your client's interest ahead of your own. You just have to make sure that the product is suitable based upon their income, their age, and, and, you know, in general things. And by the way, any financial guidance that you're given by a registered rep, the advice is incidental to the product transaction that's occurring. So it's a little bit of a different legal standard, not as high of a standard. It's more of you have to just be suitable. You have to have income and you have to fit a few criteria but it doesn't mean it's the best or it's in your, you know, or your interest is covered. And that's, that's the battle that's going on in Washington. Now people ask me, they say, Brian, what's your thoughts on this whole requirement? I get nervous about it a little bit. Just, just being straight up with you guys is because I worked as a commission advisor and I saw the conflicts, especially when I, when we were doing insurance products at my previous firm. And I had a, I had a, I had this transformation. Um, if you're old enough, you can call it a Jerry Maguire type moment where my heart changed. I mean, I saw the conflicts and I was bothered by the way the industry was working. And I wanted, and I got, I got to the point where when you go to parties, you go out, hang out with family. I didn't ever, I got, I didn't want them thinking, Oh my God, here comes Brian. He's going to try to talk about what he does for a living and push his, his stuff on me. And cause there is, there is an ickiness to, being a financial person sure. because people are constantly leery of you. I wanted to, to switch how that all worked with me. So I decided I'd go fee only. And the thing that I worry about is if we make everybody have to abide by the fiduciary standard. I just told you that there are 250,000 financial advisors, but yet only a little over 300, I mean, 3,000 of them do this fee only model. Do we really think the other 246, the 247,000, not going to lose their job, but they're, but we're going to force to a standard that their heart hasn't changed to. Mm -hmm. So you as the consumer, how are you now going to know who's wearing the white hats and who's not had the change of heart yet? And, and that's the part I worry about. I mean, cause I think it's unintended consequences. People come to, to us. Yes, we're the, the, the hidden ones under the rock because you've never heard of fee only. 
and, and you've come to it, that, that, there, there's something unique. You've educated yourself. You've recognized this is the better way of doing business and you found it. If everybody's held to that standard, how do you, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking that. from the chaff? Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you tell who's different? Because I, I just don't think those people are leaving the marketplace. They will dilute the rule down to a point that fiduciary will not be what fiduciary is today. Sure. That's probably a better way of putting it. And I think that is a true risk. So that's a, that's kind of a, an overview of fiduciary standard versus suitability. The other part is, I think a lot of people would be really surprised with this next realization about working with a financial advisor. Bo, when we get prospect calls, what do they ask us? Uh, well, one of the things they always ask us is, what's your investment philosophy? Well, they also ask, can you beat the market? Oh, man. I, I, okay. yeah, I, I get that question okay. a lot, That you know, where people say, hey, tell me, are you beating the S&P 500? <laughs> well, well, it depends. Are we talking about, you know, in the last three years or are we talking about 10 years? I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to quantify if you ask me, do I beat the S&P 500? Give, give me some, give me some, some thoughts there. And I, truthfully, I wish the question would be, hey, Guys, is your job to beat the S&P 500? Because that's a question that's much easier to navigate. Yeah, and I, and I think, and I don't blame people for asking that question. I mean, because a lot of what we do for a living is tied into performance. But I think it's also a little misguided, and society has kind of pushed us this way. If you think about it, since we do have 85 to 90% of the people who work in this industry are pushing products, where is the sizzle in the product? The, the sizzle in a product when you're trying to sell is either you're going to be pushing how super safe it is, but still with this great rate of return, or you just go straight up, hit the accelerator and say, man, look at this incredible rate of return that we're getting on our product. That's where the sizzle is. So that's where people now are looking at, give me the performance. And I will back it up and say, wait a minute, that's the micro, that's what's going on in the short term. What is the long term? Why do you even go to a financial advisor? Why do you think you even need to do this? It's to reach long term goals. When people come to me, I'm hoping that they're, that, you know, they come to me and say, Brian, I think I want to retire at 55. I want to buy a horse farm with this much land. Mm-hmm. How, how do I do that? I mean, do, what's that number I need hanging over my head so I know that I can quit working or I want to send my kids to this school? Is that possible? And then these are people really good with their money to the point that I think we also help people not just to trim what they're spending, but some people to let go and be able to enjoy life and go on family vacations. I have so many of my clients who are wired very similar to me that I think we also are the sounding board that says, it's okay. You're not leaving this earth broke. You're going to be able to take care of all your goals. Go enjoy and build those memories. Let's do it. That all ties into... The strategy and philosophy, exactly what you were talking about, Bo. I just, that's why I try to always bring people back. Be careful when an advisor's out there touting their performance mm-hmm. because performance is a fleeting thing. It's, it's not uncommon that whoever is the top performing fund this year will be the worst performing fund next year because we all know trees don't grow to heaven. There's a reason we diversify. And that's especially hard in light of the last five years, really since 2010, one asset class has dominated everything. S&P 500, large cap U.S. stocks. Does that mean diversification's dead? Not on your life. Be careful, and that's why you have to make sure you understand the strategy investment philosophy of whoever you're talking to. Ask them, hey, what's your philosophy towards investing? What do you think in the long term? Do you think you can beat the S&P 500? 
see what they say to you. If, if they just say, yeah, I can beat it, I would be a little, I'd be a little leery of that answer. I think another thing, and without, I'm going to try very hard to stay off the soapbox, but one thing I think that bothers me so much about uh, this industry, advisors in the industry, and, the, and even the way that we work with clients is a lot of people inappropriately assume that investing is a solution. Investing is not a solution. It's a means to a solution. The solution is a saving strategy, mitigating risk, achieving a long-term rate of return that helps you satisfy those goals. But I think a lot of people think, okay, if I have, I'm going to max out my Roth IRA this year and I'm going to have millions of dollars when I get to retirement, game over. And that's not the case. Investing is just the byproduct. It's one piece of the long-term plan. And I feel like performance focus allows people to miss that very important point. Right. It's it's basically the gasoline to your engine. Yep, that's it. I mean, that that's the big thing I tell people. Investments are what's going to fuel the growth and other things. But if you don't have the drive shaft, if you don't have the pistons and all the other parts that make up the engine... Look at you, it's, car it's just guy. A, oh, come on. You know, I, I grew up with shade tree mechanics. So I, I, I don't know how to work on cars, but I know a lot about stuff that I just don't need to know about. But here's the last thing I kind of want to close it out with, because I thought this was very interesting, is there has become a whole cottage industry that will help people just have credentials after their name. Um, and it cracks me up. I, I'm not going to pick, I'm not going to say some names, but there are people that are out there on Twitter and out there in the social world that when I, when I look at their posts, cause they're brilliant people, but I look at them and I see like 20 different letters after the name. I'm like, the heck are those? I mean, <laughs> what, what, what do they do? Come on. Seriously. And, and there's also, and I get it to a degree because when I started my firm, when I was 28 years old, um, I was, you know, I have a baby face. I'm, I'm in my forties now, but, well, I'm getting old enough, so I look like my age. But when I was 28, <laughs> I looked like I was probably 22. Sure. And, um, I had an insecurity, especially starting a brand new company. Would people who were 45, 55 years of age work with me? I felt like my security blanket was I did have a lot of credentials. You know, I come from a public accounting background, so I had the CPA. I had the personal financial specialist, which means I was a CPA that specialized in doing personal financial planning. And then, of course, I had the CFP designation. And that that made me feel like I could sit at the table and cover those insecurities I had. Um, and I, I'm still very proud of those designations. Just like, Bo, you should be super proud that you're a chartered financial analyst. I mean, that is such a hard designation. It takes three years of very rigorous testing. It's an incredible achievement that you have that. Um, and I think that's why... There's nothing wrong with those credentials because those are the accepted ones. There are four really big accepted credentials, and those are, we've kind of gone over them. The biggest one I would say if you're working with a financial planner is a certified financial planner. I think um, you can look at, Bo and I will debate the next one, so I'm just going to put them as a tie for second and third. We're not going to, I'll even be generous, Bo. No, I won't. Okay, CPA, <laughs> and, and PFS, and and Charter Financial Analysts are both really that you get. You know, you're getting somebody super analytical with those type of designations, and then you know the last one is that Chartered Financial Consultant. Um, I think what's happened is in most industries, really smart business business people they see a void and they see a, a need that needs to be filled, and I think over the years people recognized that the 22, 28-year-old Brian Pressens of the world had some insecurity, and so they wanted some letters out there. So there's a way to make profit. Exactly. So they recognized, well, maybe they don't want to go commit three years of their time or an undergraduate degree in accounting 
or a 10-hour comprehensive exam, but we're going to make available that for the low price of $19.99 plus shipping and handling, we're going to give them some letters behind their name. And so all this additional alphabet soup of credentials popped up to satisfy that insecurity, but did it really make them any better of an advisor? No, I think it confused the public. And the government has woken up to this, too. There's, um, you know, the government created, right after we had the Great Recession, they created a new government agency called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's who's supposed to protect us from another 2008 and I guess. We'll see. But um, that, that's who the government set up. And they have a research report that came out. Um, it's probably two years old at this point. But they had found that there were 50 senior specialist titles, meaning that there's all these organizations that have come up with titles to show senior citizens and, ba- you know, and baby boomers that are getting close to retiring, hey, we are specialists in working with people like you. And this is what the study said. I thought, I thought it was interesting. This is quoted from the article in, in, in the statement. It says, the titles and acronyms for the different designations are often similar or nearly identical to other designations, making it difficult for consumers to distinguish between different designation qualifications or how legitimate they are. I mean, and, that, and that's, a, that's a very hard thing, I think, for, for you, the consumer, do your homework because there are some credentials that, man, be proud of those credentials. They, those took years of experience. They also took quite a few test-taking things that show and justify, I have this depth of knowledge. And then to have somebody just go and do a mail order thing and then supposedly have a certificate that gives them, it, it's, it's kind of a spit in the face is what it is. So as an educated consumer, what we would recommend you do is if you are either working with an advisor or looking at working with an advisor, I would Google the letters behind their name, go read the rigor behind achieving those letters, but then I would ask them this question. I'd ask it very pointedly, hey, why did you pursue this designation? Yeah. And see what they say. Make sure they have some reason. There's a reason that Brian wanted to be a CPA. There's a reason that I wanted to be a CFA. You want to make sure there's some conviction behind the reason they sought that out uh, and that it was something worthy of seeking out. Everybody wants to be a CPA, Bo. Well, that... That is true. I mean, we can't. I mean, who doesn't want to go represent people in front of the Internal Revenue (laughs) Service? I mean, that has got to be one of the greatest things in the world to be able to go sit before the IRS. But I say that firmly with tongue planted to cheek. But, um, guys, I hope this is helpful. I mean, it is a little weird to kind of share the secrets of your industry. I mean, because it's one of those things where, I, I mean, I walk a line with this, and that's why I think I think of that Fox show is that. I recognize not all commission guys are bad, not fee-based guys are all bad. I mean, I think it really... And not all fee-only guys are good. Yeah, it it all boils down to the heart of your advisor. And, you know, there's a saying out there, and and I think uh, you hear Dave Ramsey and others talk about, you got to make sure you find somebody that's got the heart of an educator. And it all comes back to what is the motivation, what's the heart of the person that's giving you advice and um, I, and I, I think if you can find somebody that has that relationship that's willing to go on the long-term journey, because nothing that is incredible is done usually overnight. Most things are very long-term. It's more of a it's more of a marathon type event, and that's what I want the focus to be when you're thinking about hiring a financial advisor. So. Hope you enjoy the show. Give us some feedback if you want to write the show. You can write me directly. That's Brian at Money. Guy.com. You can write my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen at Bo, B-O, at MoneyGuy.com. And then check us out, MoneyGuy.com. If you want to take your relationship to the next level, we're here to talk to you. 
and we'll be back in about two weeks. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston, and Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice.